Every major economic crisis over the last 100 years has revealed what was wrong with the old way of doing things. From the wreckage of each crisis, a new way of economic thinking has emerged. And we're in the midst of a crisis like no other. Treasury Department is announcing that the U.S. budget deficit continues to shatter records. The bank is announcing today a comprehensive and timely package of measures to help U.K. households and businesses bridge across the economic disruption caused by COVID-19. Governments have cast prudence to the wind and pumped in huge amounts of cash into economies. And the role of central banks is changing radically. Is this a unique response to a unique crisis or the start of a whole new era? Economics is broken. Macroeconomics has failed us for decades. And the Great Recession should have been a wake-up call. You need to have a longer-term plan, and just doing fiscal stimulus forever is not a plan. You're listening to Money Talks, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbog, The Economist finance editor. And this week the promise and perils of the age of free money. It is sometimes said that governments wasted the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009 by failing to rethink economic policy after the dust settled. Nobody will say the same about the COVID-19 pandemic. It's led to a desperate scramble to enact policies that only a few months ago were either unimaginable or heretical. It may be triggering a profound shift in economics of the kind that happens just once in a generation. Henry Kerr, our economics editor, is the co-author of this week's cover story on the new age of free money. Hi, Henry. Hi, thanks for having me. Henry, so the last time I saw you in person, I think was the end of February or early March. And what a time it's been since then to cover finance and economics. Tell us what the past few months have been like for you. Yes, it's been pretty crazy. I think that was just before the pandemic was taking hold because I went on holiday to Japan and I came back raring to cover this big story and contracted COVID. So it was then off some more. So I missed the start. But since then, it's been really busy getting on top of all the different aspects of this. So what to you were the major developments in economic policy over the past three, four months? So several things. We've had an explosion of stimulus and economic policy activism on a scale that I think before the pandemic would have seen inconceivable. Governments have provided really unprecedented support to household incomes, to businesses, and they're running enormous deficits. The fiscal stimulus announced so far this year is $4.2 trillion. Deficits are going to be 17% of GDP. And actually, that number is already out of date because last week, the European Union announced new stimulus, which will take that, take that number even higher. And at the same time, central banks have been creating vast amounts of money to help fund this stimulus. Central bank balance sheets have grown by about 10% of GDP. So you've had this enormous intervention in the economy. And one of the striking things about that, I think, is that before the crisis, there was a lot of discussion about policymakers being out of ammunition. And so a lot of people have said, well, policymakers have done so much this year. Doesn't that disprove the idea that they were out of ammunition because they've done so much and it has been effective in response to this crisis in terms of calming markets and supporting household incomes? So it's really been a sort of transformative shift in thinking about the government's relationship with the economy. 
I remember we were actually recording an edition of Money Talks and just about to record a segment on what was happening in the markets. And I got an alert on my Apple Watch, which never happens, saying that the Fed had cut rates sort of out of sequence for the first time since 2008. That was the point at which it really started to hit home that this was quite a big deal. Yes, I think I was at a shrine in uh, Kyoto when I got that news. Your story trumps mine. As you say, we've seen an unprecedented amount of stimulus and economic policy activism. Tell us about the state of play in economic policy before the pandemic hit. Well, we've spoken on this show before about how the old rules of how to manage economies seem to be breaking down a little bit before the pandemic. This was characterised by a few things. Interest rates were very low, despite the fact that the expansion was very long in the tooth. So America had just crossed the threshold to go into its longest ever period of economic expansion. But it didn't have much room to cut interest rates if things turned sour. And part of that was about the fact that the link between unemployment and inflation seem to have gone missing somewhat in the 2010s. So the world was in this incredible jobs boom. Two thirds of rich world economies had record employment rates. Jobs were really very plentiful, but inflation still wasn't taking off very much. And the result of that was that central banks were not having to raise interest rates as they typically do during a boom to cool things down. But were sitting there somewhat puzzled about why inflation wasn't rising more and wondering if they could actually stimulate economies even more and get joblessness even lower. So it was sort of this strange world in which the traditional rules of central banking had had gone missing somewhat. And what these strange conditions had done is they prompted economists and policymakers to really rethink how the business cycle, the economic cycle should be managed. Thanks, Henry. Stay with us. This isn't the first time that a real world crisis has rocked the world of macroeconomics. Callum Williams, our senior economics writer, reports. When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? John Maynard Keynes never actually said these words, but they contain an important truth. As the world changes, economics adapts. And every so often, the whole paradigm shifts. Over the past hundred years, the ground rules of economic policy have been rewritten three times. The first shift was in the 1930s. Until then, most rich countries, roughly speaking, followed a gold standard. The amount of money issued by central banks was tied to physical gold reserves in their vaults. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. The Wizard of Oz, perhaps America's best-loved children's story, first published in 1900, is in fact an allegory of the debate over the country's commitment to gold. Oz, the idea goes, being short for ounce. With this 24-carat foundation, most policymakers believed that, broadly speaking, the economy would self-correct, given time. Then came a day when depression stalked the land. Men became scared, and not only did many foolish things, but made equally foolish statements. Overproduction, they cried. The system is all wrong. Let's remake America. A series of economic shocks, culminating in the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression which followed, shook economists from their previous certainty. But how on earth were we to get loose in an honourable way? John Maynard Keynes persuaded the Bank of England to abandon the gold standard in 1931. Other countries swiftly followed suit. It is a wonderful thing for our businessmen and our manufacturers and are unemployed 
to taste hope again, that they must not allow anyone to put them back in the gold cage where they have been pining their hearts out all these years. Freed from that gold cage, the main goal of economic policy became the active management of the business cycle. You and you and you and you, you've got a president now. He gave the land a new deal. You hold the cards, now you deal. You and you it became the role of governments to fight recessions and ensure that as many people who wanted work could get it, even if it meant governments had to borrow vast amounts of money to boost the economy. Many thousands of such jobs as these dot the map of the United States, giving work and hope to people who can't find jobs, impetus to retail trade and heavy industry, and permanent improvements to a host of communities for the years to come. But there came a time when this Formula 2 stopped working, setting the stage for the second seismic shift. As James Callaghan, then British Prime Minister, noted in 1976, We used to think that you could spend your way out of a recession. The persistently high inflation and high unemployment of the 1970s baffled mainstream economists, who thought that the two variables always moved in opposite directions. I tell you in all candour that that option no longer exists. Callaghan's successor, Margaret Thatcher, embraced monetarism, a set of principles associated with Milton Friedman. This involved controlling the money supply as the new key to economic stability. Meanwhile, events in America made it clear that it wasn't just government spending that mattered when it came to managing an economy. In the 1970s, the line between the White House and the Federal Reserve America's central bank became dangerously blurred. President Richard Nixon repeatedly asked his Fed chair Arthur Burns to keep interest rates low, even though the economy was doing well. Look, I wanted you to know that was a good result too. We reduced the discount rate today. Oh yeah, 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 good, good. What is it now? Four, four and a what? We got it down to four and a half percent. Four and a half, yeah. Burns's expansionism helped Nixon through the 1972 election, but it triggered record inflation. And I put them on notice through this action that yeah. I want more aggressive steps taken by that committee on next Tuesday. Good, great, great. I well, you can lead them. You can lead them. You know, you know, you 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 always have now. So just just kick them in the rump a little. To bring inflation under control, Paul Volcker, Fed chairman in the 1980s, had to fiercely defend his independence because his cure was a painful one. He too embraced Friedman's monetarism, choking off the money supply to drive up interest rates. Unemployment soared. What's the situation in Detroit like at the moment? Don't look good. Doesn't look good at all. It's few and far between jobs are hard to come by. How about you? You hiring? The only thing I can say is move somewhere else. <laughs> but they don't move on because the only places with jobs are Texas and California. A variation on the monetarist credo became the next big economic paradigm. Rather than controlling money supply, through the 1990s and 2000s, independent central banks set short-term interest rates to try and achieve stable inflation. Fiscal policy as a tool to boost the economy was sidelined. It was too easily politicised and counterproductive if it piled up public debt. But this neat arrangement was shaken to its core by the global financial crisis of 2007-9. To fight the downturn, central banks across the rich world cut interest rates from close to 5% in 2007 to near zero by 2012. Despite all this, demand seemed to have been permanently hit, 
the post-crisis world was one of stubbornly low inflation and weak economic growth. And at the same time, anger was brewing at apparently surging inequality. Economists once again set to soul-searching. What if interest rates needed to drop below zero? Was that even possible? Were central bankers out of ammunition? Or were there other tools they could use? And in whose interests was capitalism really working? Then came coronavirus. And with it, we may be about to experience a fourth paradigm shift in economic thinking. Henry, as Callum says, we seem to be on the verge of another paradigm shift. What do you think? Shifts in economic thought in the history of economics have often happened at the confluence of multiple intellectual and and political currents. And it feels a bit the same in 2020. So the pandemic is entrenching some of the big economic trends of recent decades. And it's also drawn attention to high inequality in the economy, exposing socioeconomic divides. You've got this new concept of essential workers. You've got the fact that the pandemic is disproportionately hitting service industries, which employ high numbers of women and people of colour. And it may yet be the case that one result of the downturn associated with the pandemic is that we see inequality statistics rise. So suddenly this task of managing the economy and of finding ways to get back to that jobs boom, to get back to full employment, looks even more high priority, not just because you're facing a deep recession, you also want to end recessions, but because the distributive impact of that recession is sort of compounding concerns that people already had. I suppose the other trend that we've seen is that the structure of financial markets and the way macro decisions are taken has changed more than most people might realise. I mean, in the financial crisis, the banks were caught up in the financial panic. This time round, they've been relatively unscathed. And that's had a huge impact, I think, on how central banks have thought about stimulus and the solutions for getting out of a crisis. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent, and I asked her to take us through this quiet transformation of the financial system. There is this public perception of banks as being both giant and also dangerous. And this took particular hold in popular imagination after the global financial crisis from 2007 to 2009. And that's because many of the institutions that were imperiled during that crisis were very large banks. And the damage that they would have wrought on the economy had they failed would have been enormous. And so there is this sort of fear of giant and dangerous banks that seems to persist to today. But this idea of banks as being dominant and dangerous is probably out of date, especially in America. In America, it's long been true that capital markets have played a more important role in credit provision in the economy. But that role has become increasingly dominant through time. At the same time, banks are not as dangerous as they once were, particularly as they were a decade ago. This is thanks to a series of regulatory changes like the Dodd-Frank Act and via things like the Basel Framework. Banks hold a lot more capital than they used to, almost $2 trillion in America, which is twice what they held in 2007. And the assets that they hold are much less risky. Risk associated with credit provision in America is increasingly held outside the financial system. It ends up in what are often called shadow banks. And this term is extremely broad and it sounds vaguely sinister, but it includes everything from pension and insurance funds, which have been around for a century, 
to, you know, modern newfangled exchange traded fixed income funds that will take investor cash and park it in a range of bonds. Institutions called shadow banks are becoming more dominant players. For example, if you look at the sort of bread and butter business of banks of lending to sort of medium sized corporates that aren't big enough to, to tap bond markets, that too has been muscled into by non-banks, in particular the private credit funds that have been spun out of private equity shops. Um, these were relatively small prior to the crisis. Now they manage more than $800 billion worth of credit assets, which is around a sixth of the total value of corporate bonds. So they have also become extremely significant players. The fact that so much risk has migrated from the banking system to the non-banking system has changed the way that policymakers have to intervene in times of crisis. So during the global financial crisis, you saw the Federal Reserve backstopping the banks. This time around, you saw the Fed intervene in a bewildering different array of financial markets and capital markets. It had to step in to calm the treasury market and to revive the corporate bond market, which had completely ceased functioning until the Fed promised to buy corporate debt. It also provided funding to the repo market, which is a critical financial market where treasuries are swapped overnight for cash by a lot of different financial institutions. A wide range of different types of markets were backstopped by the Fed, with the result that its effectively underwritten credit markets worth $23.5 trillion. And the result of all of this is that rather than acting as a lender of last resort to the banking system, like central banks had to do during the global financial crisis, this time around, central banks have had to act as a mammoth market maker of last resort. To hear more from Alice on the chequered history of the banking system and its shadowy future, listen to The Intelligence, our daily current affairs podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Henry, so we have a world of rock-bottom interest rates, low inflation, sky-high public debt and sideline banks and a huge crisis to get through. Where does all this leave policymakers? Well, both central banks' roles, these sort of twin obligations they have, both to manage the economic cycle and to guard the financial system against crises, are evolving beyond recognition. In terms of the cycle, they're becoming supporting acts for fiscal policy, buying all the government debt that governments are creating as they stimulate the economy with spending and tax cuts. And on the financial side, they're becoming these enormous market makers of last resort, intervening more directly in financial markets and not just through the banks. And I think the big picture is there's an extent to which policymakers are stuck between a rock and a hard place. So the rock is that your interest rate tool has gone away. You can't really stimulate the economy enough, so it's not growing fast enough and it's in a bit of a slump. Everyone is dissatisfied with that. Everyone is dissatisfied with capitalism. And that, of course, leads you towards toxic politics as well. 
But the hard place is that to get through this, you might be in a position where fiscal policy has to do everything in terms of stimulating the economy, which is traditionally something economists have resisted. You've got threats to central bank independence from the fact that central banks are playing this sort of secondary role in managing the economic cycle. And you've got much bigger government intervention in the economy that comes with risk of rent-seeking and capture of those new tools, those new interventionist policies. So it is a bit of a bind for policymakers, I think. Now, as you said before, some economists have been racking their brains for new ideas to fix economic policy, really since the financial crisis. What are some of the options here for the direction in which policy could go? In our briefing, we sort of divided this into into three schools of thought for how you can handle the situation of, of interest rates running out of route. So the first is encapsulated by what central banks said not long ago during the last economic cycle, which is they would say, don't worry, we have the tools to fight a recession because we can do quantitative easing and we can offer guidance about where interest rates are going in future. And the sort of view behind this is that so long as a central bank can keep printing money to buy assets, it can always boost economic growth and inflation. Some of the shortcomings to this approach started to become apparent, didn't they? Yes. Well, a lot of people pointed out that central banks had bought an awful lot of assets, seemingly without stimulating the economy very much. The numbers that central banks put about for the effectiveness of QE are somewhat underwhelming. And then there's a school of thought that says that QE sort of distorts the financial system in ways that are damaging, that it makes asset bubbles more likely, and so on. And that criticism, I think, has an impact on central banks and makes them more unwilling to use unconventional policies than they otherwise might be. So what are central bankers turning to instead? Well, nowadays, it's very common to find central bankers, instead of insisting that they have the tools they need, to instead find them sort of saying, we absolutely need an assist from fiscal policy here. We need governments to do more. We need them to run bigger deficits. So Christine Lagarde, when she started at the ECB, she opened her tenure at the ECB calling for more fiscal policy. You have Jerome Powell in America going to Congress and warning them against withdrawing their fiscal stimulus. You have Philip Lowe, who's the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, just going to Parliament and saying, look, going forward, fiscal policy, not monetary policy, is going to have to play a more significant role in managing the economic cycle. So nowadays, it seems much more as if central banks have given up somewhat on the idea that asset purchases and forward guidance are enough that they're sufficient substitutes for their old tool of interest rates. Instead, they're saying, no, we really need fiscal policy to help here too. And do you think that's the solution? That solves the problem. The job of stimulating the economy just goes from central bankers to governments. What's wrong with that? There are a couple of things there. The political economy of that setup is likely to be worse. So the whole reason why in the 1990s you had this era of independent central banks targeting inflation just by moving interest rates was that it was better to take some elements of managing the economy out of the hands of politicians who are too short-termist, who are likely to preside over booms and busts by inflating the economy before elections and then deflating it afterwards. And so the question is, if you just say there's a handover from central banks to fiscal policy completely, you're losing that institutional division that was put in place for a reason. So I say that's the main risk. And then there's also the question of public debt and that fiscal policy, if you run big deficits for years on end, is inevitably going to leave you with more public debts. And so there's a question as to whether that's a problem, because of course, monetary policy doesn't leave that hangover. 
And yet there are some who argue that the stakes are so high right now that these are risks that need to be taken. They went big and they went fast. To me, that is a clear sign that central banks across the world learned a lesson from the Great Recession. Claudia Sam is Director of Macroeconomic Policy at the Washington Center for Growth. Before that, she spent over a decade at the Federal Reserve, which she joined in the middle of the financial crisis. So the idea that whatever you think you need to do, you need to do twice as much, and you need to move twice as fast. And yet, I am worried that the U.S. Congress has not internalized the lessons from the Great Recession. I am afraid, especially as they're debating the next relief package, that there are too many red flags in terms of let's wait and see, let's pay attention to how much money we're spending, let's try to really target it. And it is so hard to watch us hitting repeat. It is their job. They were elected to serve the people and be good stewards of our taxpayer dollars. And at this point, if they do not spend, if they do not send money out, we will pay for it for decades. Claudia, you mentioned congressional concerns that stimulus might cost too much. Do you see a role for the Fed in helping to finance the spending? And is this a case for what former Fed chairman Ben Bernanke referred to as helicopter money? So I have argued that money finance fiscal policy, which has been coined the helicopter drops, I think Ben Bernanke might regret that being a term that he had used in the past. It, to me, is the nuclear option. What happens is the Federal Reserve makes loans and it tells the borrowers, you will never pay this back. We will put it on the Fed's balance sheet. We will do something that's referred to as monetizing the debt. Right. So the Fed can just print money. Let the printing press just go brewer. You know, I mean, they can really do this. However, they have to have authority from Congress to do it. And I have spoken with congressional staff and I have said, not only do you need to give them the authority, you have to tell them that they must do it. My concern about this is it is undemocratic. You are giving the keys over to an institution where the officials are not elected, they are not accountable to the American people, right? So it is a very dangerous, in my opinion, constellation. And yet, at this point, if that's the only way we can get money out, go for it. Henry, what do you make of Claudia Sam's position? Well, I think that there's a short-term and a long-term issue here. In the short term, it's really difficult to find economists who dispute her argument that fiscal policy has to come in here and do an enormous amount just because the nature of the pandemic is such that what you need to do is get money out of the door to into people's pockets. So I understand that. But then there's this other looming question, which is if we're stuck in this world after the pandemic of low rates for a long time, which looks more likely now, how do you manage the economic cycle going forward? So what's the exit policy from this strategy? We have one camp of people who call for central bankers being more courageous when they think about monetary policy. We have a second camp that wants to pull out all of the fiscal stops. But you've argued that there's a third school of thought, which is more radical, Henry. Tell us about that. Well, the third school of thought says, actually, both the first two are wrong as ways to manage the economic cycle over the long term. For similar reasons, which is that both leave issues for the future, public debt, large central bank balance sheets, and so on. And what we should really be doing is thinking of ways to rescue interest rates 
as a policy tool for independent central banks. But what that means is that you have to be prepared to take interest rates through that floor at zero and take them negative, and not just marginally negative, as they already are in the Eurozone, in Japan, in, in, in Sweden and Switzerland, but deeply negative, you know, minus 3%, minus 4%, if that's what it takes to keep the economy on track. And one person who advocates this school of thought quite forcefully is Ken Rogoff, who is the former chief economist of the IMF and a professor at Harvard. Certainly, fiscal policy is the right response here. Nothing you do with monetary policy is going to get people to go to work if they're scared to go to restaurants, to go to hotels. It doesn't matter how much you cut interest rates. People can't go to work. You have to give them money. You have to support them. And if you're a country that's fortunate enough to be able to do this, it's absolutely the right thing to do. But eventually, you have to try to use other tools in addition to just fiscal policy. And I think it would be helpful to be able to use normal monetary policy cutting interest rates. Well, interest rates have already been cut more or less to zero. Where do you go from there? Traditionally, what central banks have tried to do in this situation is create inflation. And that makes money less attractive. It creates a negative inflation-adjusted interest rate and encourages people to invest, encourages them to consume. But at least for now and into the foreseeable future, they have not figured out how to do that. So I have advocated the possibility of using negative interest rate policy rates. And if it does create inflation, I think it would. I, I think that would be a very good thing, redistributing money from creditors to debtors. To what extent does the existence of physical cash stop you from implementing deeply negative rates? Because physical cash obviously guarantees whoever holds it zero return. You can avoid the negative interest rate by holding it. So do we need to get rid of physical cash to pursue your ideas? We don't need to get rid of physical cash at all. In the very long run, physical cash, you know, it's going out of use in the normal legal transactions and central banks will have more power to do it. I certainly think phasing out large bills would be a good idea. It would make it harder to hoard cash, but you don't even need to do that. The big obstacle to negative rates, it really is preventing massive in other words, somebody digging a hole in a mountain, stuffing cash in it. And let's face it, that's not that easy to do. What you need to do is establish a tax on redepositing large amounts of cash back into the central bank. And that, if done correctly, and it's not very complicated, would completely eliminate cash hoarding. But there's a reason that central banks haven't used negative interest rates much to date. And where they have been used, it's, it's, as you say, marginal. What are those obstacles and how should they be overcome? I think the main reason that they haven't done this till now is a concern that it wouldn't work like normal monetary policy, even though the studies are increasingly showing that it does, things coming from the European Central Bank. And let me tell you, there is fierce pushback from the financial sector, which is very happy with the current situation. The stock markets are riding high. They're afraid that if there were a shift in policy, it might redistribute the benefits. I suspect everyone will be doing this in five or 10 years. It puzzles me that central banks aren't willing to more openly study the issue. 
given the incredible limits on the tools that they have. Well, that leads me on to my next question, really, which is you're confident that negative rates can work, but they're clearly some way off. To what extent is this still a thought experiment? If tomorrow central banks decided they were interested in this idea, how quickly could it be implemented? It could be implemented very quickly, say with a month of study, probably. Given everything else they've done, pushing so many things to the envelope that, you know, announcing that we're going to negative rates tomorrow would, I think, create volatility. But we're not getting out of this in six months. At least I'd be very surprised. You need to have a longer term plan and just doing fiscal stimulus forever is not a plan. Henry, what do you think of Ken Rogoff's proposal? Well, it has this elegant simplicity, doesn't it, that if you manage to uh, get rates deeply negative, then you can preserve your institutional setup and everyone sort of knows how interest rates are supposed to work. To get there, you have to undertake quite significant reforms to the financial system, possibly including phasing out physical cash or at least large denomination banknotes, where it's easier to see how fiscal policy can just step in and substitute for monetary policy without too much work. The idea of going to deeply negative rates, even though it's sort of elegant, requires a much greater push. And so it's in some sense harder to see it happening. I put this idea to Claudia Sam, whether negative rates could be the answer. Absolutely not. We have historically low interest rates in the United States. We don't have a problem right now of the borrowing costs are too high. Frankly, we have the opposite. The borrowing costs are really low. And that's why Congress should just borrow. They can do this. It's risky for businesses and families to take on a lot of debt, though the borrowing costs are low right now. The problem is cash flow, right? That's why businesses aren't investing. That's why businesses are laying off people. They just don't have money. So you can push the interest rates down as low as you want to. It will not matter. Economics is broken. Macroeconomics has failed us for decades. And the Great Recession should have been a wake-up call. So, yeah, maybe this time there is a reckoning, but I'm not holding my breath, right? Like, macro is very tough to push out the zombie models. And we have a lot of them, and they are all marching out right now in terms of inflation risks and the deficit will be too high. And if we give people good jobless benefits. They won't want to go back to work. I mean, they're all marching out. All of these came out in the Great Recession and the recovery, and they were all wrong. So, you know, I have a, I stay busy, but we have a long, long road ahead of us if we, as economists, really want to be a contributor that makes the world better instead of worse. Henry, I was struck by what Claudia said, that the Great Recession should have been a wake-up call. Why didn't we see the study of macroeconomics, economic policy, change more after the financial crisis? I think there was a sense in which, during the financial crisis, policymakers were acting on the fly in a way in which they didn't quite understand. So quantitative easing was very much debated in terms of its effects and whether it was appropriate at the time. These sort of evolutions take time. The other thing is to remember is that going into the financial crisis, rates were still fairly high. There was still quite a lot of room for certainly the Fed to cut interest rates. And only then did it have to resort to unconventional policy. Whereas this crisis, we've gone into it from a low rate world. So the Fed was able to cut rates a bit. 
but nothing like as much as it typically does during a downturn. And the ECB hasn't cut rates at all. All of its policy has been unconventional. So the way I look at it is that the global financial crisis was sort of the wobble of the old institutional setup and the pandemic has really knocked it over. How do you think the new era should work? The way to look at it is that you've got to address the challenges of the age. So when macroeconomics, as we know it today, was born in the 1930s, then its task was to prevent depressions. When monetarism was in the ascendancy in the 1970s and 1980s, that was in response to stagflation, inflation being high and unemployment being high at the same time. Whereas today, what policymakers need to do is create a framework that allows them to manage the business cycle and to fight financial crises without a sort of politicised takeover of the economy where all policy is sort of bailouts and redistribution and there's lots of opportunity for rent-seeking and special interests. The key thing is to take advantage of the low-rate conditions without falling into that trap. So I think we're at the beginning of a large shift, not just in macroeconomic management, but also in thinking about the relationship between the state and the economy. So some of the ideas might be that you find a way to delegate some fiscal firepower to central banks so that they can be the ones pulling the fiscal lever and you keep some political neutrality. Or, as I say, you could reform the financial system to allow negative rates. So the promise of the new era is great, but the stakes are very high. Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thank you, Rajna. And you can read Henry and Callum's briefing on this new age in macroeconomics. Subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. And as a subscriber, you'll also be able to read our upcoming assessment of the recession in emerging markets. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. That's all for this week's Money Talks. Remember to rate and review wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Sharnbog, And in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>